All right, Genesis chapter 9 is where we pick back up tonight. And if you read ahead after we get through chapter 9, chapters 10 and 11, there's a little bit of tedious reading there, so we'll we'll see what we can do to try and touch on some of those things and then get to some really interesting things as we turn the corner in chapter 12 and we start to see the calling of Abraham who will consume a good portion of the book of Genesis as we start moving forward from there. But as we came to the end of chapter 8 last week, we finally got Noah through the other side of the flood and Noah and his family we saw after God took them through the flood and led them back out and commanded them to go back out onto the dry land. Basically, these eight souls, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, now step back out. The earth has been cleansed, and they have this fresh start in this very beautiful way. It tells us the very first thing that they did was they built an altar to the Lord, and they made sacrifices, and they began their new season on the earth, turning their hearts back to God, consecrating themselves Uh, over to the Lord in an act of worship and just this beautiful demonstration of how their intention was to put God first in their lives and to allow the Lord to be the one who their hearts were focused upon from this very first day as they stepped off of the ark. And chapter 9 now opens up uh, telling us, So God blessed Noah and his sons and spoke to them. And and what a beautiful connection as you see Noah and his family building an altar to the Lord and worshiping the Lord. Uh, The Bible tells us that when we draw near to God, He draws near to us. And as they, in an effort, draw near to God and build an altar to the Lord and render worship up to God, that in response to that, we see God's blessing. The very first thing that comes out of us in chapter 9, verse 1, is that God blessed Noah. And you know what? There is no better place to have your life in to receive God's blessing than to uh, have your life in the center of the will of God whereby worship is the central thing and it's the fundamental thing for you and for your family. And this man Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord, a godly man, a righteous man, worship is at the center of not just his personal life but it's at the central peace of his family, all eight of them beginning to worship the Lord, and you notice that God's blessing is on a life like this, just like Psalm 1, blessed is a man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, blessed is that man. When when God is at the center of our lives, that's a life that's going to experience God's blessing, in the same way when we retract and we uh, turn away from the Lord, we become self-willed, and we don't want anything to do with the things of God, we can expect that that's a life, not necessarily that God's going to curse, but it's a path that we walk in, and whenever we walk in our own ways, uh, that's a path that is in direct opposition to God's blessing. God says, I've set before you you know, a blessing and cursing, life and death, and God says, choose life. I, I want you to choose the path of blessing. I don't want you to choose the path that's cursed. And here in a beautiful way, the first thing we read of Noah's embarkment off this boat is that God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, much like we heard him say to Adam and Eve initially, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Go out once again, begin to replenish and fill the earth, spread out. And we'll see how that command, remember, is really interesting and fundamental because when we get to Genesis chapter 11 and they're trying to stay in one place and not spread out, we see that it's in direct rebellion to what God was telling them to do. Not only to be fruitful and multiply, 
But just like God told Adam and Eve from the beginning, spread out and fill the earth. And we see a defiance of that happening in the 11th chapter when we get there. Verse 2, God tells them, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand, and every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. So at this point, notice a couple of things. Notice that God supernaturally is instilling the fear of man into the consciousness of the animal creation. It tells us that the fear of you, and how that happens I don't fully understand, but God said the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth. And in some way God was putting the fear of man, that sense that man was to have dominion, into the animal creation where there was this sense of respect for mankind and humanity. And and that's a good thing in some ways, because if you just consider some of the uh, animals that exist, I mean, we, we wouldn't be much of a match for them, but somehow God supernaturally has put this fear or reverence towards man, no doubt as a, a loving act of God's protection towards us. He puts the fear of man into animals and also, God now gives the right and, and privilege to mankind also, not only to eat from the, the vegetables and from the foliage of the land. God says, I've also given you all things. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, even as the green herbs. Remember, initially, man was commanded basically to just live a vegetarian lifestyle, but now God gives the permissiveness to begin to partake of meat. And this is one of those scriptures I read and go, Amen, thank you, Jesus. Uh, Because the Bible says that all things are consecrated by the word of God in prayer, and we should say grace over everything and enjoy everything that God gives to us to eat. But somehow I find it much easier to say grace with a hunk of meat between my teeth than I do you know, uh, asparagus or broccoli or cauliflower or whatever. And, And I understand there may be pros and cons of partaking of both, but God's word demonstrates to us that God has given us freedom to enjoy both. Uh, so there's nothing more you know, spiritual or, 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 or holistic or wholesome or whatever about being a vegetarian or a vegan. And I understand there are pros and cons of doing any things, but God has given us the freedom to enjoy both. We have it here in the scripture where God says there's this change that comes now. Interesting, on the other side of the flood, God now says in the same way you ate of the green herbs... I've given you all things, he says, even every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. But notice, lest we not have reverence and respect for what God intends, we now see verse 4, God says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now later, when we get into the law in Leviticus 17, God is going to say the life of the flesh is in the blood. And what we see happening from a very early stage, even prior to the law already, is God is beginning to give man a a reverence for the sacredness of life and the reality of a sacredness for blood. And again, later Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. They were not to eat the meat raw. They were to drain the blood out of the animals first. And God's giving them a sense of reverence for the blood, which represented the life 
of a creature. And of course, that is just beginning to prepare their hearts because ultimately it would be without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And God wanted them to realize the value of a life that was represented by the blood of whatever that was. The Bible tells us that that we weren't redeemed by corruptible things, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we talk about the blood of Christ and we sing songs about the blood of Christ, and maybe when you first become a Christian, you realize as we're singing all these songs, you go, man, what is this? All these songs are about the blood, the blood, the blood of the Lamb. Well, it, it, it speaks of the life of Jesus Christ, that Jesus' life was poured out for us. In the same way that the blood of the lambs would be shed in the sacrificial system, and they would realize as they saw that lamb die before them, and they would see this innocent lamb fall limp as as it had to be slaughtered, the innocent substitute for their sacrifice. In the same way, it put into their hearts and minds a very clear reality as they saw this lamb fall limp and dead and its blood pour out. It put into their mind very clearly a picture. This is what sin does. The cost of my selfish choice, the cost of my mistake, the cost of my rebellion against God caused this innocent substitute to have to die in my place, and its life was lost. And I watched its life be lost because of what I'd done. And of course, all of those things were beautiful foreshadowings of the life of Jesus, God's own dear Son, and how it would be His shed blood that would ultimately make the atonement for our souls, that the life of Jesus Christ would be poured out for us as He would become our Passover lamb, the very lamb of God who the Bible says takes away the sin of the world once for all. In the same way that lamb would be offered in the sacrifice for sin, that the lamb of God, the precious spotless lamb, Jesus, without spot or blemish, Peter says, that he himself, John said, is the lamb of God who takes away once for all, once for all, the sin of the world. That's why Hebrews tells us, remember, that the, the blood, he says, of bulls and goats, the, these things, they temporarily cover sin, but they can't remove sin. They would temporarily appease God. That was the law of God. They had to do these things. But there was the repetition of sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice continually because those things would appease God. But those things could only cover. They could not remove Sin And Jesus ultimately came in the fulfillment of that. And already you see from very early on, from the moment Noah's stepping off the ark, already God is giving them a reverence. He says, look, you need, he says, to realize that you cannot eat the flesh with its life, that is its blood. Because that blood was something that would become very sacred further down the road in relation to the forgiveness of sins. Well, verse 5, God then says, surely for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning From the hand of every beast, he says, I will require it. And from the hand of every man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever, verse 6, sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. So in the same way, there in verses 2 and 3, you see God putting somehow supernaturally the fear of man among the beasts and the animal creation. Now, here you find God seeking to put the fear of God into the heart of man. In the same way he put the fear of man into the conscience of an animal, here we see God trying to put the fear of God into the heart of man because God says, 
Life is sacred. And wanting them to recognize that life was sacred and precious in God's sight, especially human life, because God says in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be said, for in the image of God he made man. And wanting us to realize the sacredness of life, God now says, I will require reckoning, whether it dies by the attack of an animal or whether a fellow man murders and puts to death a fellow man, he says, God, I will require a reckoning. And here, in a sense, you have the institution of government beginning to happen, where God actually says here, from the hand of every man's brother, I'll require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. You have the institution of capital punishment, in essence, where God says if someone murders and diminishes and disregards the sacredness of the life of another human being, made in the image of God, the sacredness of a human life, then God says when someone has stooped to that level and they have murdered and taken away the life of someone else, God says then that person's life should receive the same. In a governmental sense, God says then by man his blood shall be shed. He, he should lose his life in exchange. Capital punishment, it's in the Bible. It was instituted and it's endorsed by God. Now I know that may not be politically correct, and I know people may have mixed emotions about that. All I'm telling you is what the Word of God says. It was something God instituted. It was something God endorsed. And you can guarantee that if endorsed and if, in a sense, executed, it would have a pretty powerful deterrent. Would you agree? You know, when God institutes certain things, he's not only looking of doing what is just, but he's also looking to deter the sinful, selfish tendencies in our lives that would cause us to carry out many of the wicked desires that are within us. Remember, even when they stepped off the ark, God said of Noah and his family, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. See, the problem is simply this. Interesting, as God institutes government from the start, God realizes that man cannot govern himself. That's our biggest problem. That's why Romans 13 tells us that every authority that exists has been ordained by God and that the ministers, it's what he calls uh, law enforcement officials, Romans 13, the ministers of God, he said they don't bear the sword in vain. And God has instituted such things because apart from those things, can you imagine what our culture would become like? I mean, look at, look at what we're living in, in in the wake of where we're at right now. Look at the tragedy that just transpired because there's no, there's no reverence and appreciation for the sacredness of life. And look what type of things happen. And let me go so far as to say this. You know, things like that happen and we say that this is a tragedy. A tragedy that, you know, 28 people would die and 20 of them, children, first grade children, murdered, ruthlessly murdered. And we should rightfully feel grieved and we should feel saddened by that, that the sacredness of life was diminished. But you know what is sad as well? The truth of the matter is, in the same way, we murder thousands upon thousands upon thousands of children in the womb every single year. And we have a president who will stand before the nation and express remorse because they had their whole lives ahead of them. And how wrong and selfish that they would lose their lives and that their lives would be taken away from them and, and, and in a sense express remorse and yet we have the same individual who is someone who endorses, allows, and encourages 
abortion, which is murder in the same sense and the devaluing of human life in the exact same way only a few years prior to first grade. They don't get a chance to live any of their life out. And see, it's a contradiction of terms. And it's just an indication of how much in our culture, sadly, we have lost God's value for the sacredness of human life that we are made in the image of God. Every life, every life, that God values it. The Bible says we're knit together in our mother's womb, Psalm 139. Before our days even come to be, they're all written in God's book. And it's not our business to interfere with that, to decide when we're going to end the life of someone whom God created, whom someone God designed. And listen, if you've been a part of the process of an abortion, I don't say that to condemn you. There's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And, and that is no sin greater than any other sin. And the, the blood of Jesus can cleanse and wash that guilt and wrong away as well. But our thinking is backwards. And, and we need a fresh reminder and revelation of how much God values life. And here, prior to even the law, and, and it becomes more clear and codified as we get into the Mosaic Law, God lays out more things. You know, was it, was it someone who truly murdered, or what, did somebody accidentally kill someone? If someone would accidentally kill someone, then there were cities of refuge, and there are ways to work through that in a just manner. But here we're dealing with just murder, selfish murder, just the removal of life. And God has a very harsh, in a sense, discipline and punishment towards that here in the scriptures we find from the very early days verse 7 he says and as for you be fruitful multiply again just a reiteration of what we read earlier bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply in it and then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him saying as for me behold he says I establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds of the cattle and the, every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. And thus I establish my covenant with you. And God says, never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So God now begins to establish a covenant with Noah. And we'll see as we go through the word of God that God is a covenant-making and a covenant-keeping God. He makes this covenant with Noah, and he gives the sign of a rainbow. God will later make a covenant with Moses and the children of Israel. And the sign of that covenant with the Jews and the people of Israel is the Sabbath. And it's a perpetual covenant for the Jews, the Sabbath that God gave to them. And it was a sign of that covenant. God makes a covenant with David and, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, and the sign of that is circumcision. And God is a covenant-keeping God. God makes promises. God keeps his covenants when he makes them with us because he is the one who institutes them. And because of that, you know, we should be a people who, when we make a covenant and we make a commitment, we represent the Lord well and that we keep it. There are certain covenants that we enter to. And here God now establishes this first of covenants, and it's with Noah. He says, Noah, I make my covenant with you and your descendants after you. And this covenant, God says, is never again, verse 11, shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now take note, God does not say never again will there be a flood on the earth. Because there are localized floods. What God is saying here is never again will there be a universal worldwide flood 
as a form of my worldwide universal judgment on the earth. And we know that's true. When we get to the New Testament in 2 Peter chapter 3, it tells us that God will destroy the earth in the last days by allowing it to dissolve its elements. It says will just melt and, and be dissolved in fervent heat. So God will use fire and the dissolving of the elements of earth to create the new heavens and the new earth in some form or fashion. But here God is saying not in the same way Will he do that? And God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And it shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you, every living creature of all flesh, that the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the rainbow shall be in the cloud, interesting terminology, verse 16, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that's on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So take note of the language. Verse 12, God says, this is the sign that I make. Verse 13, he says, I set my rainbow. Verse 14, I bring a cloud. Verse 15, I will remember. Verse 16, God says, I will look on it. And verse 17, I have established. Do you take notice that the faithfulness is predominantly all on God's side. <laughs> that predominantly God is the one who's the faithful one. And that we live very simply by the grace of God and through faith. God's the one making the covenant. God's the one keeping the covenant. The Bible says that even when we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And here God says the sign of this covenant that he'll never flood the earth again to Noah is that God would use the rainbow. So in essence, every time Noah and his sons and his lineage would look up and see the rainbow, it would be a reminder to them. It was a visual reminder of the reality of what God had promised, the promise of God, the faithfulness of God to keep his word to them. And God says, as you're looking up at it, interesting, he says there in verse 16, as the rainbows in the cloud, he says, I will look on it. So how neat to know that as they were looking up at the rainbow, God was looking down on them. As they were looking up and remembering the faithfulness of God, God was also looking down and remembering what he had promised to them and remembering what his intentions were towards them. And just sort of a beautiful thing when we see the rainbow to this day, still a reminder of the testimony that how long has it been since the days of Noah and God has honored his word. God has fulfilled his word and God has kept it. And every time we see that visual reminder, we remember that God's the one who made the promises and he performs what he promises. He keeps what he promises. And that's a great encouragement because maybe you have been in a covenant, in a promise with someone else and they haven't kept their covenant and they haven't been faithful and they haven't followed through. Listen, you will always have that assurance with God. God will never break his covenant with you. God will never be unfaithful to you. God will never leave you or forsake you.
It's something about God that we cannot fully find in other people. But yet it's a great thing to know that we can find that in him. Verse 18 says, Now the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham, it tells us, was the father of Canaan. Now, interesting, just that little insertion there, Ham was the father of Canaan, because we'll see that there's an event that's going to transpire here with Ham. And Ham has more than one son, but yet there's this reference to Canaan, because ultimately Noah will see something prophetically in the line of Canaan. And, of course, we remember as we get later on in the Old Testament what the Canaanites become uh, among the nation of Israel and how they become perpetual enemies and they become a very wicked group of people who God seeks to exterminate from the land to give that land to the Jews. And here it's almost as if we're beginning to get an indication of where some of this is going to go. So these three sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and these three were the sons of Noah, and from these, he says, the whole earth was populated. So, from these three individuals that stepped off the boat with Noah, the entire earth has been populated. Everything that exists has been populated from those three individuals. So, in essence, every single one of us, even in this room tonight, we're family. Because every single one of us somehow can all trace back our ancestry, according to the word of God, to these three individuals. And those three individuals were all brothers. So, the person who irritates you most in the body of Christ, beyond just being your spiritual brother and sister, they are family. You know, you can choose your friends, you're stuck with your family, guess what? We're all family. In essence, the same blood that started out in the same veins of these three, it's all from the same place. And you know, would to God if we would just recognize and remember things like that, isn't it amazing how stuff like that really should drive out of our our beings, the wrong attitudes that we have towards prejudices and superiority of classes and this and that. Listen, we all came from the same family, every single one of us. It doesn't matter our nationality, our ethnicity, our skin color, whether we've made it rich or we're living poor. It, we're all from the same family. We're all from this, the same three individuals, it says, that stepped off the boat from those three people, the whole earth, was populated. And verse 20, it says, And Noah began to be a farmer. So he took up now a, the trade of farming, it seems, as he starts this new life. And he planted a vineyard. Verse 21, And then he drank of the wine and was drunk and became uncovered in his tent. Now, very interesting. Here's Noah. He's a righteous man. He's a godly man. It tells us back in chapter 6 that it was Noah who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So here's a man of God, a godly man who was a preacher of righteousness, who was a man of faith and obedience. We've talked about all these things as we looked at the life of Noah, but I want you to realize that he was just a man at best. That's all he was. Because look what we have Noah doing. We have Noah stumbling now. We have Noah beginning to falter a little bit. This very godly man demonstrates to us that there was some frailty to him as well. He was a sinner, just like every one of the rest of us. It tells us that Noah drank the wine in which he had got from that vineyard, and he got drunk, and as drunkenness also causes to happen, many a times it leads to poor choices 
and and our inhibitions uh, being diminished, and somehow Noah allowed himself to be ultimately uncovered in his tent, because verse 22 says, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. Interesting. First time in the Bible, the word wine and drunkenness shows up. First time the word wine shows up in the Bible, and the first time the word drunk shows up in the Bible, and look at the result of it. You know, we have what we call the law of first mention. Usually the first time something shows up in the scripture, it gives to us the best representation of how that word is to be understood and carried out. And here's the first occasion we find of wine in the Bible, and what is it attached to? To the drunkenness of a good and a godly man who ultimately then makes poor choices that not only affect himself, but they end up affecting his family as well. Now listen, I understand and I know as well as you do that the word of God does not clearly say that it is sin to drink alcohol if you're of the legal age and are able to do that. However, the word of God very clearly condemns drunkenness, which is what we find Noah doing here. And the Bible very clearly indicates that drunkenness is wrong and it is to be a sin. So what we have Noah doing here is, is certainly, you know, a flaw, a mistake, a foolishness. And, and to me, here's what I see, and you study this out for yourself. What I see is this. Whenever you see alcohol mentioned in the Bible, you tell me how many times you find it in a positive light. And then you tell me how many times you find it in a negative light. And more often than not, when you see wine and alcohol addressed in the Bible, the greater percentage of the times you find it, it is always attached to negative outcomes, to drunkenness, to mistakes, to people who are doing foolish things. And, and, and other than when Paul tells Timothy, take a little wine for your stomach, and look, that's not for pleasure. That was a medicinal purpose. That was because for some reason, Timothy was struggling with some bacterias and a little Montezuma's revenge or something. And Paul said, Timothy, uh, take a little wine. You need to kill some of those parasites in your stomach. It was for a medicinal purpose. And that was all it was for. More often than not, you read the Proverbs and it indicates that you know, drinking alcohol often, more often than not, leads to drunkenness and drunkenness is sin before God and it leads to doing foolish and regretful things. First time drunkenness shows up in the Bible, what's it attached to? To someone becoming uncovered, becoming naked and in a sense revealing themselves in a way that leads to regret and leads to remorse and foolish choices of not only him but other individuals around him. And here we see Noah, unfortunately, making this poor choice. Again, just a reminder even good and godly men fail. Now, this doesn't say this was a habit in Noah's life. And that's a whole other issue. I'm not saying that this was a character trait and something that, in a sense, was a chronic problem. But it shows you that even good and godly men still fail and still stumble. And you know what? I don't know what it could be in your life, but, but maybe you've blown it in the area. Maybe you've you know, made mistakes. Well, look. I'm thankful that the Word of God gives us a clear, honest picture of individuals. That it shows us Noah, man of God, good man of God, but he failed on occasion. We'll see Abraham, good, godly man, the friend of God. He lied at least twice that we know of. We read of David and some of the flaws of David. We read of Moses and the flaws of Moses, how he sought to 
kill an Egyptian and to bury him. And I'm thankful that the word of God gives us an honest representation of what people are really like because it, it takes away some of the condemnation that we often heap upon ourselves when we blow it and we fail. And we think, oh man, I had this one major failure. That must be it. Now I'm, no, I'm not an A-postle. I've got to be a B-postle the rest of my life. You know, I'm just, that's it. I've got to be a second-class Christian now because that's it. I just, I just really blew it this time. And, and how wonderful to see that, that God's Word reveals to us just the reality. It shows men for who they really are. And how wonderful for the grace of God. You know, maybe there were other mistakes in Noah's life, and that is what it meant when it says back in chapter 6 that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord, because where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And I'm thankful for the grace of God and the forgiveness that's available to us. And Noah here, we see him, unfortunately, stumbling in this way. He has too much to drink. He ends up getting drunk on this occasion. He becomes uncovered or naked there in his tent. How it happened, we don't know, but he's laying there, passed out from the alcohol in some sense. And Ham, it says, one of his sons, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Shem, excuse me, and Japheth took a garment and laid it on their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces, the idea is showing us a contrast, their faces were turned away and they did not see their father's nakedness so Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done to him so as Noah is there laying naked and uncovered passed out from his drunkenness it tells us verse 22 that Ham one of the sons somehow inadvertently walks into the tent he sees his father there naked it says saw and and the the Hebrew there indicates to 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 glare upon, to look longingly upon, indicating it wasn't just a glance, it was that he recognized and, and paused to stare for a moment. And then it says he came out and he told his brothers, and there the language indicates to tell with a, with a sense of joy, as if you're bringing good news, indicating that he basically was mocking and, and making a joke out of his father's nakedness. And rather than being respectful and reverent and feeling sad for his father's failure, instead, he in disrespect was seeking to make, hey, can you believe what the, and, you know, and, and look what, the, what and, and, and he with a sense of joyfulness was no doubt mocking and disgracing and shaming his father's nakedness, did nothing to cover it. Instead, he went out, instead of covering it, what did he do? He uncovered it all the more. He broadcasted it. He went out and told his brothers and who knows else in a way that it was kind of a mocking, you know, spread the news in a rumor sense of, of what he just found old poor old dad doing there in the tent. And it tells us that when that happens, Shem and Japheth, the other two brothers, they take a garment and they do the exact opposite. As they lay it on their shoulders, they walk backward into the tent so they won't even see their father's nakedness. And the disgrace that he's in in that moment. And they lay it on him to cover him. And then they come out afterwards. And what a tremendous contrast. One person who wants to rejoice in and spread and uncover all the more the foolishness and the failures and the sins of someone. And two other individuals who say, you know what? Hey, that is, that's nothing to broadcast. We need to cover that up. That's a shame. That's sad. Our heart breaks for him. 
You know, what does the Bible teach us when we get into the New Testament? It says that love covers a multitude of sins. And unfortunately, the attitude of old ham exists way too much in our lives so often where we find somebody who's failed, and instead of wanting to try and cover up someone's failures, many times through our words and things that we're saying, we're, we're telling other people and broadcasting people's failures. And that happens in lots of different ways. Whether, hey, well, let me tell you this, brother, because we need to pray for so-and-so or, 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 or just through slander or through gossip. Or I'll tell you a way where it happens many times as well in a very subtle way, but I'll tell you it's in a very destructive way, is when husbands and wives point out the flaws and the failures of each other in the presence of other people. And you know what? That's horrible. That's horrible. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that the man and his wife are supposed to be naked and unashamed. Which means that you should have, in a marriage relationship, the ability to be naked and to be who you are and not to have to be ashamed with who you are in front of that person and not to have to worry if that person is going to belittle you and make you look like a fool in front of other people by, in a jesting, mocking way, pointing out your flaws and failures. And so often, you know, it's real easy to do that as, as husbands. It's real easy to do that as families. And we need to be careful. And we need to learn how to put a lid on it. We need to learn how to have the attitude of Japheth and Shem who say, you know what, man, let's do what we can to cover that. Let's not expose that and shame that. It's shameful enough. Let's cover that. Let's not, let's not make any more of it than what we need to. And love as led to these two, the covering of the sins there of their father as they walk back in. And Noah, it says, wakes up, notice, not from his sleep, it says from his wine. And he knew what his younger son had done to him. You know, whether he asked, hey, what happened, or whatever, in some sense, he's aware of what has transpired. In verse 25, then he said, cursed be Canaan, and the serv- a servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. So, he now pronounces, and, and don't misinterpret, not pronouncing a curse upon him, but no doubt Noah, in a prophetic way, is now prophesying what he saw would come through the line of Ham. Notice, who did this? Ham did. Canaan is one of the sons of Ham. Now, whether the son was involved in the mockery or not, the Bible teaches that we're not pun- a child is not punished for the sins of the father. And Ham had multiple sons. So I don't believe this is Noah here pronouncing a curse because if he was pronouncing a curse, he should have pronounced the curse upon Ham, right? He was the one that did it. And and why would he pronounce a curse upon Canaan and not the other sons of Ham? As we'll see, Ham has multiple children. What you have here is Noah, no doubt, just prophetically receiving revelation from the Lord and seeing prophetically what would ultimately come through the line of Ham, and more specifically through the one son, Canaan. And we know as we study out the scriptures what the people of Canaan, where the land of Israel ultimately becomes, we know what ultimately comes of the people of Canaan. They become a very wicked and vile people. A very wicked and vile people. And and it's just a, a great indication, too, of no doubt where did they potentially learn some of their wrong and their wicked ways from. Well, guess what? Kids are observant. He ends up seeing a a very cursed line in the line of Canaan, one of the sons, but that son was the son of a father who was a little bit twisted himself. 
And we need to remember that. In the same way Noah's sin affected his kids, in the same way apparently Ham had some effect, and one of his kids, which became the line of the Canaanites, became a very wicked people, a very wicked people. And as a result of that, in a sense, there was a curse upon them and what they would do to themselves. In verse 26, he said, And blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And may God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years. So all the days of Noah were 950 years, and then he died. So, not a bad track worker. Getting drunk once in 950 years, I mean, that's, that's a little more impressive than a lot of us there. 950 years, that's a long, good, and godly life. And, and, and Noah, interesting, if you chronologically take out the timeline, if Noah lived 950 years, that would mean that Noah would be alive until the time that Abraham would be 58 years old. So very interesting, Noah living 950 years could, could very well have had interaction and conversation with Abraham because at the point of Noah's death, Abraham would already be 58 years old at that point. So it's very possible as we you know, look through this to realize that there could have been conversations that transpired through these different key figures that we see in Scripture according to the chronological timelines of when these individuals were. Well, let's glance at chapter 10 a little bit. We'll be merciful since it's a, a genealogy. And chapter 10 basically gives us the description of the dispersion or the origin of nations. Most people call this the table of nations. And it basically shows us uh, really where civilization stemmed from and how it stemmed from these three sons particularly. It says this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and sons were born to them after the flood. So basically we'll see the, the representation of 70 nations here. This isn't all nations, but what we have here is how civilization stemmed on the earth from these three different sons. In verses 2 to 5, first of all, give us the lineage of Japheth. Uh, the lineage of Japheth in verse 2 to 5, and we'll see that from them... If you look at these things and you want to dig deeper, you'll see that basically they form sort of the Indo-European peoples that now exist on the earth. So in a sense, again, from chapter 10, if you search it out, every one of us can trace back our ethnicity and our nationality basically to these three original people. It's really an interesting historical document that God has given to us. It tells us, verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and now he begins to list them, were Gomer, not pile, okay? Golly, I know that's what comes to your mind. Just helps when you go through something like this. Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tyrus. So notice from the line of Japheth, first of all, it says Gomer, and basically they seem to be what became the formation of eastern Turkey. Some believe the Germans have their uh, lineage and ultimate descent from them. Magog, we see that in the scriptures later on repeatedly, they become the, Scyth the Scythians. So from this group would come the, the Slavs, many believe the Soviets, the Bulgarians, uh, potentially even the Croatians uh, from Magog ultimately. 
uh, Madai, which would be the ancestor, if you notice the term there, Madai, the ancestor of the Medes. Later on we see the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, that would come from this particular individual. Uh, Javon would be the Greeks, uh, or where they would descend from. Tubal and Meshech, again Meshech, where we uh, get our original word, the Moscovites, so again referring to the, uh, the Russians. And then Tyrus, some believe, is actually a reference to a group of people who may have become the Italians. Uh, and again, we can't be dogmatic in all these things, but when you trace back the historical spreading of where these individuals went to, there seem to be clear indications of those things. Verse 3, and the sons of Gomer now, so this is the second generation, Ashkenaz and Ripta and Togarma, and we know Togarma is modern Turkey, uh, so we know where Togarma would refer to. Verse 4, it says, and the sons uh, of Javon were uh, Elisha and Tarshish and Kittim and Dodanum or Dodinum. And Tarshish, we know, basically becomes the early settlers of Spain. Uh, so this is what Tarshish would indicate. Spain, the area of North Africa, these particular individuals went to. Uh, Kittim, we know, is a reference to the island of Cyprus. So we understand what that indicates to us. Uh, verse 5, the co- these are the coastland peoples, it says, of the Gentiles that were separated into their lands, according to his language, according to their families, and into their nations. And now verse 6 and down, we have the sons of Ham. And it says the sons of Ham were Cush, and Cush is a reference to Ethiopia. Uh, we read as well here Mizraim, and that's ancient name for Egypt. Uh, Put, which is a reference to Libya. And Canaan, we know exactly what that refers to, all the Canaanite peoples who originally existed in the land of Canaan where God ultimately gave to the Jews and to the people of Israel to take over their land. Verse 7, the sons of Cush now, second generation, Seba and Havilah, Sabbath and Rayama and Sabekta, and the sons of Rayama were Sheba and Dedan. So verse 7, give to us tribes of Arabia and some of the people who became those who settled in the area of Sudan and Saudi Arabia. Uh, it goes on to say, verse 8, and Cush begot Nimrod, a great name for your next son, uh, Nim, but then again, it says he began a, became a mighty one on the earth. Uh, he was a mighty hunter, so you don't want to mess with Nimrod. At least initially, he didn't mess with the Nimrods. <laughs> he was a mighty hunter before the Lord, and therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and we'll talk more about that next week as we look at chapter 11. But remember, it was this guy, Nimrod, we'll talk about it who was the one who instituted the, the area of Babel, which becomes very prominent in the Bible, and Iraq and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. And from that land he went, went to Assyria and built Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh ultimately becomes the capital city of Assyria. We remember Nineveh in the Bible, the story of Jonah. And Rehoboth, Ur, and Kala, and Rezin. You got all these down, right? Figured you would. Uh, Between Nineveh and Kala, that is the principal city. And the Mitzraim begot Ludim, and Anim, and Lehabim, and Naphtuhim. And you can pronounce all these, right? 
You have no idea if I'm saying them right or not. So, <laughs> Notice verse 14, And from whom came the Philistines, and we know who they are. Remember the perpetual enemies of Israel, the coastal cities there uh, along the Mediterranean, and Kaphaturim. And Canaan begot Sidon his firstborn, the Jebusite. Now remember the Jebusites are entrenched in the area in Canaan. Remember, Canaan is the land that Israel takes over. The Jebusites are the people who dwelt in the area where ultimately it became what? Jerusalem. Because remember, they went in and, and took over the city of Jebusite, and that became Jerusalem, or the capital city of Israel. And the Amorite, and the Girgashite, and the Hivite, and the Mosquito Bites, and all those guys that you're aware of, right? All the, all the ites, and these were all the tribal people in the land of Canaan, often referred to generally as the Canaanites, the Arvadite, verse 18, the Zemurite, and the Hamathite, and afterward, the families of the Canaanites, that's the listing of all of them, they were dispersed. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as far as Gerar and as far as Gaza. And then as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, and that will be a prominent place as we get further in the book of Genesis, we know who they are and what they become. And Adma and Zeboim as far as Laasha, and these were the sons of Ham, according to their families and according to their languages, in their lands and in their nations. And then the line that we're going to really focus in ultimately is the line of Shem, that third son of Noah. The children were also born to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder, and the sons of Shem, it tells us, were Elam. Now, Elam is basically what we know today as Iran. Uh, so interesting. Uh, he, he gives birth to the race or the nationality of the Iranians. It says here as well, there was also Asher, which would become the Assyrians, and Aram, which becomes the Arameans or the Syrians. And notice Aram, which is where we get the language of Aramaic. So uh, all these people from the line of Shem, take notice as well, verse 24, Arphaxad begot Selah, and Selah begot Eber. Now Eber becomes the, the, the Habarim, which most believe becomes the Hebrews. So how very interesting to take note of among these Mideastern peoples, again, that, that exist here, that the same blood you know, is running in the veins of the Israelis and the Palestinians and, and, and these different individuals who have such animosity and hatred towards one another, and yet the same blood runs in their veins, and yet what a tremendous thing has happened among them as a people. And again, what is a lot of it a direct result of? of the sinful choices of some of the great men of God in Scripture. You know, even some of Abraham's foolish decisions. Think of what exists between Ishmael and Isaac as the result of one bad decision of Abraham and how that has perpetuated the problems in the Middle East to this day. So don't tell me, oh, it's just one bad choice. How much damage can one bad choice cause? A lot. A lot. One bad choice has created conflict in the Middle East to this present day. Because one guy chose 
to do one selfish thing and to get ahead of God and to do things his way instead of God's ways. To this day, there's still conflict among people who really have the same blood running in their veins, but yet a tremendous hatred in their hearts towards one another. Verse 25, to Eber, again, were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Interesting, the earth divided. It could again remind us that at one time there was a universal connection of the land masses, that again the flood separated, but at a time there was this connection of land bridges between the masses of the continents. And Joktan begot Alamod and Sheleph and Hazmaveth and Jera and Hadurim and Uzal and Dikla and Obal and Abameo and Sheba. Now, verse 29, notice Ophir. We talk about the gold of Ophir in the Bible. Later on, we'll see that in the prophets. Havilah, and then verse 25, and Jobab. Some believe that that could be a reference to Job. You know, historically, the book of Job is actually chronologically the oldest book in the Bible. We have the records of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, but the oldest book chronologically in the Bible is Job. So, again, some of these characters, you know, interacting with one another, Abraham, Job, some of these guys know each other and have dialogue. Sometimes we just picture them so separated from one another some believe, some historians believe that this could be a reference to Job himself. Well, again, very, very likely, an interesting thing to consider. Verse 30, it says, And their dwelling place was from Mesha, as you go towards Sephar, the mountains of the east. So these spread out towards the east. Again, ultimately, we know that civilization went to the east and to the orient, as there was oh, that which took place. And these were the sons of Shem according to their families and according to their languages in their lands according to their nations. And these were the families of the sons of Noah according to their generations in their nations. And from these nations were divided, it says, on the earth after the flood. Now chapter 11, in a sense, then goes back, and we'll see this next week, and it shows us how all these divisions took place. Because when you get to chapter 11, verse 1, it says the whole earth had one language and one speech. And you go, wait a minute. I just thought we had 70 different nations and everybody <laughs> going all over the place. How did that happen? Well, chapter 11 records for us how this dispersion of nations took place and why it took place and what was God's reasoning behind it. You know, Before we close, turn with me quickly over to Acts chapter 17. And even as you consider the fact of, again, and it's through the events of the Tower of Babel that people get spread and disperse the nations all over the earth, and we'll talk about that next time in our study together. But Acts chapter 17, as Paul's there speaking to the people of Athens, we have this interesting thing where it tells us, Acts 17 verse uh, 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Again, God's pretty sufficient. 
Don't ever let anybody give you the idea that God needs something. Don't ever let you go, well, you understand, if you don't... No, it says that God needs nothing. God needs nothing. He's not dependent upon us. We are completely dependent upon Him. It says as if He, need, he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made, verse 26, from one blood... Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Here's why, verse 27, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Is that amazing? Even God, in the dispersion of all the different nations, the Bible tells us that God himself has determined our times and the boundaries of our dwellings for one reason, verse 27 says, so that every single person on this ball of dirt of every nationality and of every language and every skin color and every ethnicity would ultimately seek the Lord and grope for him and find him. Because he's not far from each one of us. Isn't it amazing to consider God allowed you to be born here to speak the language that you speak. God allowed you to be born in the place you were and positioned where you were. And even in all those things, God has one intention, that you would seek him and that you would find him. Every single person on this planet that was born where they were, they were born into the royal wealth of a king or whether they were born to the absolute poverty, whatever it is, all those things God orchestrates and overrides all of that and he does it all in a way that people from where they're at, God in his sovereign wisdom, would be in a spot where they would be best positioned to reach out and to find God. That's God's number one agenda. So we should never question, why was I born here? And why did I have to be in that family? And why did I have to experience this? Listen, God loves you so much that he let you be born at the time in the generation that you did and be in the family that you did and experience even everything that you did because God knew that was the best chance that you would reach out and find him and it would affect your eternal destiny. That's tremendous wisdom. And that's tremendous love. And that allows us not to wrestle and question and wonder, why this God? Why that God? No. The times, the positioning, everything that happens in our life, God's using all of that because God says, this is how I know that you'll seek me best. That's how you'll find me and you'll get saved. And that's how you'll continue to reach out for me and grope for me because you're in the spots and the times and the seasons that you are. And God does all that in his wisdom amazing technicality and how much loving intimacy God in the grand scope and scale of everything in creation is working that individually in your life in a personal way. Let's stand, let's pray together. We'll close out our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the word and for the things it says to us and, and Lord, how every part of it you've promised is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that we could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, that which we have sown into our hearts tonight, would you water by your spirit and help us to live out fruitful lives in this week ahead, resting that, Lord, you're in complete control of where you put us 
and the timing of everything you've done with us and are doing with us even in this day and hour. And we commit this week ahead to you in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Amen.